Y'all feeling all right? I don't know about you, but that tomb is empty, uh-huh. See, y'all just, hey. See, some of y'all didn't go to old church. Old church, but that would have been 10 people in the aisle right now running. Right now. Church would have been over. No sermon, nothing. Band would have been back up. But that's all right. That's all right. We're going to get you there. This is truly good news, y'all, that Jesus is risen, that today is Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And it's this unique moment in church um, life where no matter what you were preaching on last Sunday, no matter what you were doing last Sunday, this Sunday, almost every denomination, almost every church in this, in this city, in this nation, and around the world, they're going to preach the same message today. They're going to preach about the power and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we, as part of God's church, uh, we are but one of many um, embassies of God's kingdom and rule and reign, and so we are going to follow in suit. But I wanted to come at it from a little bit different angle today. See, I grew up going to church. Anybody grew up going to church? Now, let's, let's, let's test this real quick. If you was at church three days or more, raise your hand. Four days. Five? Six. Amen. Y'all the holy rollers. Y'all know. You got to be at church at least six days a week now. At a, at a minimum, six days a week. You got Bible study, youth group, choir practice, usher meetings, deacons meetings, leaders meetings, church on Sunday, conferences. Um, so I grew up going to church all the time, and it was a normal rhythm of life, but I was not a Christian. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even told you I was a Christian. I didn't even think I was. Matter of fact, I was pretty aware that I was rejecting Jesus because I didn't want to live the way I thought he wanted me to live. And so, every year, you have to sit through an Easter sermon, and I remember going many, many years, um, and I, I realized that there was something special about this day, even as an unbeliever, but I didn't know why. Why is it such a big deal that Jesus came back to life? Even if we accept that it happened, even if we accept that it's true, why is that a big deal? If someone were to ask you, hey, man, did you know a gallon of milk in Japan costs $20? I wouldn't agree or disagree. I just wouldn't care. Now, don't look that up. I just made that up. That's not a real thing. It's uh, not a real thing. I don't want to tempt you to get on your phones right now. So for many of us, if you were like me, it's not about whether you believe Jesus did it or not. It's so what? So what? Jesus came back to life. So what? Jesus died for my sins. For me, it wasn't a matter of belief, but relevance. Why does it matter that the tomb is empty? Why does it matter that Jesus came back to life just like he said he would? And that is what I want to answer for you today. Is so what? Jesus came back to life. Why does that matter? What does that do for you and I in the struggles of our life, in the day-to-day tasks of our day? Why does Jesus being alive matter? And to do that, we got to start at the beginning of the story. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story about the life, death, dissension, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But that's not where the story starts. We're going to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, all you have to do is lift your hand. One of our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. Um, you will need the Word of God. Some of the verses will be on the screen, but not all. If you need a Bible, just lift your hand up, and one will be brought to you. You see, we may see the Bible as this antiquated, outdated book written to different people in a different language, to a different time, to a different situation, 
But honestly, we're still struggling and grappling with the issues that we see even in the Garden of Eden. We're going to look at a passage that some of you may be familiar with where after creation, God created the man, Adam, and the woman who would later be called Eve and put them in a garden and gave them everything that they needed. And matter of fact, gave them himself. The Bible says in Genesis that God would walk and talk with Adam in the cool of the day as if you and I were talking right now. But then something happened. Sin entered, rebellion began and has spread to us. And then God does something profound. God asked man three questions in Genesis chapter 3. God asked man three questions. Now, think about that for just a second. Does God really need to ask questions? No. So who do you think the, the question is really for? Is it for God's curiosity or is it for us? It's for us. And so we're going to look at the questions that God asked mankind in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to realize that the Bible is not this antiquated, outdated book. We are still struggling with the answers to these questions. And that is why we need a Savior. Let me read the whole passage, and then we'll dive in. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at it and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this? You have done. And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Did you see the three questions God's posed to man? We're going to walk through those questions because, once again, those questions are not for God's benefit, those are for ours. And we're going to see by God's grace that we are still trying to answer those three questions. And that is why we need a Savior. Let's start at the beginning in verses 8 and 9. The first question that God asked is, where are you? Now, put, fast forward, back, backtrack to the scene real quick. Where is Adam right now? It's okay, you can talk. He's in the garden. So God comes down in the cool of the day. They had just rebelled for the first time. Something in creation told God no. Now, think about that for a second. God spoke to darkness and light came. God spoke to waters, and they parted, and land was formed. This is how powerful God is, and I've said this before, but it still rocks me. God spoke to things that didn't exist, and they obeyed. 
God said to light, let there be light. There was no light before he said it, but something created itself just to respond to the command of God. That is how much God is God. God spoke to things that did not exist and they obeyed. Then God speaks to man and we have a better plan for our lives. God says, you have everything. You have me in relationship. You have the trees of the garden, but just this this one tree for your own sake. Don't eat. But they ate for the first time rebellion entered creation. For the first time, someone told God no. And so they hid. Why would you hide behind a tree from God? Think about that for a second. Verse 8 and 9, read it again. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. They heard God walking in the garden as he always does in the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They're hiding behind the trees that God made for them. Then God called out and says, where are you? Once again, God knew where Adam was, so why was God asking Adam, where are you? God was asking Adam, where are you, so that he would take stock and realize, what are you doing? I am here. Where are you? And the reality is the first thing sin did is it separated us from God. It separated us from God. Every day Adam would walk and talk with God in relationship. No shame. No fear. Then all of a sudden sin entered and the first thing sin does is produce shame. The first thing sin does is produce shame where we run from even God himself because we don't want him to see us. And so it's interesting that these three questions that we see in the book of Genesis chapter 3, the world has a response for every one of these questions. Now, there's a difference between a response and an answer. All, my, all the parents should know the difference, right? Y'all ever had the question, hey, where you going? And your, and your child says, oh, I'll be right back, like I used to say. I'll be right back. That's not what I asked you, though. That's the difference between a response and an answer. A response is, you said something and I said something back. But it doesn't satisfy the question. An answer satisfies the question. I'm sorry, teenagers. I'm not picking on y'all. I'm just, I'm just trying to help you. Your parents love you, and they're looking out for you. So the world has not an answer to these questions, but a response to these questions. So we see the first thing sin does is it produces shame, or we even hide from God himself. We reject relationship with him because we're afraid of being seen by him. But the problem is we were made for God. God created us to be in relationship with him. God didn't want anything from Adam other than to walk and to talk with him in the garden. Adam had no other job. I'd have had no other occupation than to steward creation and walk with God. So we were made for a relationship with God, but sin enters in, separates us from God. So how do we feel that longing in our hearts for God himself? Well, the world has a response. 1 John 2.16 says, The world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but of this world. Here's the world's response. Distraction. Lust. Pride. Achievement. Stuff. The world consumes every waking moment that these are the things that will really make you happy. These are the things that you need to chase, and it keeps us in a frantic pace so we never have time to stop and be still and realize 
that these things aren't satisfying us. All the world offers is fleeting pleasure that makes our shame even greater. And if we're honest, I mean, if we're all the way honest, sin doesn't never satisfies for long, does it? When we scheme and maneuver to get this thing that we know we shouldn't get, but we want it anyway, and then we get it, the dissatisfaction and disappointment is immense. Because it never lives up. Sin never lives up to the promise. It never lives up to its claims. And yet we are trained from birth to pursue this world and the lusts and the pride and the achievements that come along with it. But the reality is we can't hide from our conscience. And that's what happens next in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Pick up the story. So God asks Adam, where are you? Basically, why are you hiding from me? And he replied, Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. Listen, why? I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord said. This is the second question that we see God ask mankind. And it's simply, who told you? Where did you get this information from, in this case, that you were naked? Do we really believe that God doesn't know the interchange that the serpent had with Eve? Do we really believe that God was off the clock during that time? His hands were off the steering wheel? No, he saw all of this happening. So when he asked, who told you? It wasn't for God's information. It was for Adam's revelation that he would realize, where did you get this from? That you were naked. And that word naked in the Hebrew Arom, it literally means uncovered carries this connotation of exposed or vulnerable. You see, we see in Genesis 2.25 that the whole time Adam and Eve were unclothed, but they never thought of themselves as naked. They never thought of themselves as unclothed. They felt no shame, the Bible says in Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So what happened? They've been naked for a creation, exposed and vulnerable to each other, yet no shame. All of a sudden, sin enters, and everything that God had said about them in their hearts becomes challenged by the lies of the devil. See, here's here's where shame and fear come from. It's a fear that if people see us for who we really are, they won't like us. If people see us for who we are, they won't accept us. And we translate to even God that if we really give our lives over to God, if we really come to him for how we are, for who we are, even he won't accept us. But the question that I ask to you is the same question God asked Adam is, who told you that? Who told you that you were no good? Who told you that no one will ever love you? Who told you that you will always be alone? Who told you that God can never forgive you? Who told you that God can never use someone like you? Who told you that? You see, what makes shame even worse is we go from feeling guilty about what we've done to feeling ashamed of who we are. And so we cover ourselves. We hide from relationship with one another. We hide from relationship with God himself. You know, Cigna, um, this multinational uh, pharmaceutical company, recently did a study a few years ago, and they realized that loneliness, hear this, loneliness is as big of a health risk as smoking. They say loneliness will take just as many, if not more, years off of your life than smoking cigarettes. 
Why is that? There's countries around the world that are declaring loneliness a health crisis. That people are becoming more and more separated from one another, more and more entrenched in their own worlds, and it's literally physically killing us. And yet we do it time and time again because the fear of being known is so great. We would rather die early in our grave than to live in open honesty and relationship with other people. And there are some of us who would rather die in our sin because we feel that what we've done and who we are is so bad that I don't even want to risk rejection by God and so I'll never come. I'll never come because what if he casts me out? So the question is posed, who told you that? Now, we have this weight of shame, but remember the world has a response. You see, the world is working for your soul just as much as the kingdom of God is working for your soul. And so the world has to give you a plausible reason to keep denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what could be the world's response? We feel trapped by lies, trapped by fear, and so the world gives us an attractive way out. Instead of countering the lies of the enemy with God's truth, the world tells us that there is no such thing as truth. Matter of fact, we get to define truth. You speak your truth, I'll speak my truth. Instead of submitting to a God, we tell ourselves that we are gods. We are kings. In order order to unburden ourselves from the weight of shame, from the lies of Satan, we sell our souls to the worst tyrant of them all, ourselves. We take God off the throne of our hearts and we put ourselves there. 2 Timothy 4, 3 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them what? Whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject truth and chase after myths. And so God's question to Adam of who told you is now replaced by the world's maxim, I speak my truth. I am the master of my fate. I am God of my life. So the world gives us a hollow response. So here's the question. How's that working out for you? How is being God over your life working out for you, if you're honest? Not well, if we're honest. We're separated from God, separated from truth, and lastly, we become separated from goodness itself. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Genesis chapter 3. So God asked him, who told you that you were naked? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. That's a whole other sermon. The woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Look at the last and final question the Lord asked. And the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? What have you done? The following verses, we are going to be confronted with the ugliness of sin, with the consequences of sin, the curse, which is the rightful response of our rebellion against God's righteousness. And we begin to see just how bad sin is by the question, what have you done? Our separation from God and others leads to shame and fear, which leads to sin, and sin always produces brokenness and death. It always yields brokenness and death, and because of 
sin, we are separated from goodness itself, wholly detached from being able to do the right thing anymore. You see, there are some of us who believe that if we just did enough good things to counter the bad things, then it'll all balance out. But the Bible tells a more grim tale that even the good things that we do are still corrupted and infected by sin. The good things that we actually think we're doing actually compounds our guilt because they're bad things. Let me prove it to you in Scripture. Romans 3, verses 10 and 12 says, As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. No one seeks after God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Now, that verse does not mean we are as bad as we could be. That means we are worse than we think we are. You help an old lady down the street, and you have compounded your sin against your God. You give away all of your possessions, and you have compounded your sin against God. You try to be a good neighbor apart from Christ, and you have compounded your sin against God. Because if we're honest, at the base of all of that is man-pleasing and pride. Even the good things that we do that people applaud us for, that people pat us on the back for, are corrupted by sin itself and makes us more guilty. We are separated from goodness itself. So once again, the world's got a response. So how can we, we know that we're living wrong, we know that we're broken people, we know that everything we do is tainted with sin in our hearts. So how can we live our lives apart from God? The world gives us an easy statement, and you have heard this before, the simple words, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? You've heard that before, right? That is wickedness. Because who am I to judge is not a question, it's a statement. The statement is, you don't judge me. And we set up this kind of implicit agreement in the world that if you don't judge me, I won't judge you. You don't call my sin sin, I won't call your sin sin, and we'll just agree to go our own separate ways. The brokenness inside of us screams at our conscience that we are not good people, that we are broken inside, that fear and shame and selfishness are the silent motivators behind all of our good deeds. So how do we silence our nagging conscience? We destroy the concept of right and wrong altogether. That's right for you. This is right for me. That's true for you. That's true for me. We're already separated from truth, so why not separate ourselves from morality altogether? And then we kind of create our own kind of quasi-morality that says, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, what's the big deal? I get to define sin and morality and right and wrong and the standard I'm going to set for myself as long as I'm not stopping someone else. If I'm not hurting anyone else, then it's okay. But then the question again becomes, who told you that? Who discipled you in being a god unto yourself? Who trained you to create your own system of right and wrong because you don't want gods? Who told you? And here's what I want to get to, y'all. In order for this whole thing to work, let's just, let's just have a, a moment of just honesty and sobriety right now. In order for this whole thing to work, 
separated from God, separated from truth, separated from goodness. We know something is wrong with this world. We know something is wrong with us. We know things are not the way they should be. I don't have to convince you of that. So how does this house of cards we call the world stand when all of us know that it's wrong? When all of us know that it doesn't satisfy? And here's how. We agree to never question it. If you are discipled in the world like I was discipled in the world, you are taught to never question this. That morality is relative, that there is no such thing as truth, that you live your life, I live my life, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, it's okay, that there is no God, I am God. Where did we get these things from? Someone taught these things to us. Our heart affirms it because we want to reject God in any way we can, and the only way it stands up is we just agree to never think about it. Never talk about it. Never think about eternity. Never think too deeply about right or wrong. We define freedom as autonomy. And we're taught to pursue whatever we think is happiness from moment to moment. But here's here's my ask. God asks his three questions, which are still true of us. And so here's my question to us all. Can we just stop pretending that things are okay? Can we just stop pretending that we got life figured out? Can we just stop pretending that we are good at being God? Can we stop pretending that our sin is bigger and badder than God's grace and forgiveness? Can we stop pretending that being our own God is working for us? I don't have to convince you of these things. You know it's true that the the fleshly pleasure experienced satisfies us less and less and burdens us with more and more shame. You see, this world takes everything from us and gives us nothing, and yet we still lift it up. We still protect it. We still don't question it. So the stuff we're told to chase, money, position, power, safety, marriage, degrees, none of that stuff really seems worth it, if we're honest. But yet we structure our whole lives around these things. Why? C.S. Lewis, a writer and thinker, once said, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you've tried the things of this world and you realize how empty they are, how shallow they are, how worthless they are, then isn't that a clue as to maybe you were made for something more than this world can offer you? Maybe you don't need to keep shifting your goals and and keep shooting for the next thing, but maybe you need to stop and reassess and understand that there's nothing in this world that can fill this void. Marriage is not going to do it. More money is not going to do it. More stuff is not going to do it. Another vacation is not going to do it. The only thing that can fill our broken hearts and give us hope outside of ourselves is Jesus. Is Jesus. What is our hope, y'all? This is all bad news. But see, before we get to the good news, we got to understand the bad news. A doctor walks into your, your, your room after a routine checkup, and he says, hey, you're great. You're healthy. And we say, okay, that's what we expected. But 
if we walked into that doctor's office because it was our cancer screening because they had found something and we were stricken with cancer in our body and things were not looking good and all of a sudden the doctor says, you're great. All of a sudden there's a weight there that God has done something. And so we say all the time that Jesus loves you and Jesus died for you and Jesus inviting you into a relationship with him, but most of us think that we're pretty good people. Most of us think that, oh, sure, God loves me. I'm pretty great. Sure, God forgives me. My sins aren't that bad. And so we don't treat it as precious because we see ourselves more highly than we ought to. The reality is, y'all, we are way worse than we think. We are more broken than we dared imagine, and we are more deserving of hell than we would ever care to admit. There's a passage in Romans chapter 7 where a man named Paul, feeling the weight of his own sin, cries out, Oh, what miserable man that I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? And if that's you right now, if you're saying, I am broken, I do realize this stuff in this world is meaningless, then know that there is hope. You see, Paul in this passage calls sin and death. See, we call it separated from God, but Paul would say that God is life. And so if we're separated from God, we're actually separated from life itself. And so although we may be moving around and breathing air, we're actually dead. Because without God, there is no true life. And Adam and Eve found themselves in the same position. They had sinned against God. They had received the pronouncement of the curse, which is the consequence of their own actions. And in the midst of their despair, God said in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, for all my theologians, there's a, there's a run bubbling up in your heart right now. But for the rest of us, let me explain what just happened. That was the first message of hope ever given in the Bible. The first gospel presentation, it was real quick. You might have missed it, but look at that last sentence. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Who is the he in this passage? You see Adam and Eve sinning, us rebelling against God. None of that caught God by surprise. None of that caught him off guard. You see, this was the plan all along, that there would be someone to come and rescue us from our sins. And he will strike your head and you will strike his seal. That basically means the devil's going to get some lits in, y'all. The devil's going to get some hits in. But in the end, Jesus will crush his head. Jesus is the key that will stomp on the head of the snake. And he will defeat death and victory. And that is the good news. In the midst of curse and sin entering humanity, in the midst of Adam and Eve's darkest moment, God gives hope through Jesus. And so he does for us even now. We have chosen, all of us have chosen to live apart from God. We have chosen to reject his commands and to, to do good and live rightly. We deserve hell. That's actually what we want. We don't want heaven because heaven is an eternity with God. We've said in this life that we don't want that. So we have chosen punishment as better than being with God. And the reality is our sins have racked up such a debt that no amount of good deeds can ever pay the bill that we owe. We are bad people who deserve the wrath of a holy and good God. 
But as the mothers used to say, but God. You see, if that was the end of the story, I would not be right here. I would be doing whatever I wanted to do. If the end was death and destruction and separation from God, then there's no reason to do any of this. But God seeing us in our sin, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, separated from life itself, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. You see, the resurrection isn't just some historical fact, although it is. The resurrection isn't just some meaningless religious story. And the resurrection wasn't just when Jesus came back to life. The resurrection was when life itself was offered to you and I and to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is our hope of a future resurrection. Jesus coming back to life showed that we could have life too. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, take a guess who that is. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Let's make it plain. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Jesus not only undoes the curse, but he gives us a righteousness that we can never earn. And a hope that we don't deserve. That is why the resurrection is good news, church. So I started off by saying that we are separated from God. We are separated from truth and we're separated from goodness. So how does Jesus get us back? We're separated from God from our sin. But Romans 5.10 says, For since our friendship with God was restored by what? The death of his son. While we were still enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We went from separated and enemies to now friends through Jesus Christ. I said that we were separated from truth itself, believing the lies of the enemy. Who told you that God wasn't good? John 8, 31 says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And what? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we go from being enslaved to lies to now free in the truth. In the last one, we were separated from goodness itself. Even the good things that we did were really just bad things that we were pretending to do. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus restores our relationship with God. Jesus restores our our relationship to truth. And Jesus, by his power, frees us from the shackles of slavery of sin. Jesus' life gives us a perfection that we could never earn. Jesus' death takes the punishment that we could never bear, and Jesus' resurrection proclaims a victory that we could never win. That is why we preach Jesus. So why do I celebrate the resurrection? Beyond platitudes, beyond theological statements, why does Philip Pinckney celebrate the resurrection? Because I, like you, trusted in the counterfeit comforts of this world. I was bound by fear and shame, so I distracted myself with lust and pride and selfishness. 
I believed the lies of the enemy, so I tried to create my own truth. I felt the weight of guilt for my sin and the consequences of living by my own rules, so I tried to throw the rules away and make myself God. But I realized, like many of you are realizing right now, that this world offers nothing and takes everything. I needed a Savior. I needed someone to do for me what I could not do for myself. I needed someone to do for me what I had tried to do for myself. And you need a Savior today. You need a way out of this bondage that you're living in. No amount of good deeds can do it, y'all. No amount of good vibes in the universe, whatever that means, can do it. No amount of sacrificial service will do it. You need Jesus. And here's what I want to close with. Jesus speaking to the churches, which is true for those of us right now. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The reality is that right now, if you don't know Jesus or if you don't know that you know Jesus, he is calling you to repentance today. You, you don't have to get your life together first because you've tried that and it doesn't work. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your affairs in order. All you have to do is come to Jesus and say, okay, I quit. I quit trying to do what you've already done for me. I quit trying to make my own world and my own image, which you've already created creation for me. I'm going to stop being God and let you be who you are. And that's good news. That's what God is calling us to right now. Would you turn away from your old way of living and trust Jesus? I started with the difference between a response and an answer. The world is going to fill you with many responses. The world and the music and the social media and the culture, they're going to give you these one-liners that seem cool. When I was in high school, it was blaming on the alcohol. Y'all remember that? So another story, another testimony for another time. Where, where that? But think about that. That's, that's not a song, y'all. That's discipleship. They're teaching you to rebel against God, and if anybody asks, here you go. And music is still doing that now. They're discipling you to reject God, and when your conscience starts to bear down on you, say this. I'm not hurting anybody. Why does it matter? There's many ways to God. How, how do you know this is the one way? But as Pastor Jake preached a few weeks ago, we never take a moment to doubt our doubts. We never take a moment to say, I know that this is wrong. I know that this world is broken. I know that this Jesus is real. Why do I believe in these shallow lies from the world? Why am I allowing myself to be discipled in deceit? To be discipled by lies that I know they're lies. Here's what I'm asking for you right now. I'm asking for a moment of honesty and sobriety. I'm asking for you to just be honest with yourself. I'm not going to convince you into Christianity. Can't nobody do that. But the reality is you know it's true. I sat in church service after church service, and I got good at bobbing and weaving conviction. I got good about, nope, I don't feel bad. Nope, that's not tears. That's something else. Like, I got good at ignoring the Holy Spirit because I wanted to live my life my way. But if I'm honest, that was so disappointing. Sin never satisfies. It never lives up 
to its promises, and yet we are trapped in a cycle. We feel bound by it. And Jesus is offering you freedom right now. Freedom. Would you pray with me, church, now? Father.